Hello, and welcome to another message from Aldinga Bay Baptist Church. If you'd like to find out more about us or what we believe, please visit aldingabaybaptist.org.au. Uh, thank you for the opportunity of being here today and for the privilege of being a preacher opening the scriptures. Uh, I do want to bring you greetings from my wife Elizabeth and our family to you and your family and also uh, my home church, City Light East. Uh, it's a delight to meet other believers, uh, even if you have to travel an hour with a water bag to get down here. Uh, but it is a good drive. And it was uh, actually, I thought today was going to be bucketing with rain this morning, so it was nice that the sun was shining and that the roads were clear. And of course, traffic in the morning on Sundays is very light. Uh, so I got here quicker than I thought. In fact, I was probably here half an hour earlier than I needed to be. But there's nothing wrong with that. It's better to be early than late, correct? Uh, all leaders in church love to hear that from their people, rather be early than late. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you might like to turn to the passage that's been read, although we won't look at all those verses in John chapter 17. And we are continuing this series that you've been doing through the liturgical calendar. Uh, and apparently that would assign to the preacher John 17, John 21, and Luke 24, verses 50 to 53, which basically covers the high priestly prayer of Jesus and his ascension to heaven. And I thought, how am I going to put all of that into one message? So as I thought about how to combine those two events, uh, one particular word came to my mind, and it was the word glory. Uh, because we'll see in this high priestly prayer that glory is a significant theme in these opening five verses. And the fact that Jesus ascends to heaven after the victory of the cross and his resurrection is he's ascending to where? Glory. Uh, so there is a connection between the two events, although we're going to focus this morning particularly on this high priestly prayer. Uh, and so it's going to be a theme about passion for God's glory in the posture of prayer. So I don't know what your prayer life is like. Uh, I think in the Western world, prayer is probably one of the hardest things for believers to do and to do consistently and to do intensely. I think we're so self-sufficient in the Western world. I mean, we have sufficient money generally to pay for our bills. Uh, most people have food on their table. They have clothes on their back. They have shelter over their heads. Not everybody, but that's fairly typical of our Western culture. And so in one sense, you know, well, why do I need God? I mean, what do I need to pray about? And of course, when disaster hits, that's when the prayers tend to go up, right? You know, when my health fails or I lose my job or a situation of relational breakdown occurs, whatever it might be that causes me some pain and suffering, then that's when I tend to think, ah, I need something more than myself. I can't handle this on my own. And so that's often when prayers go up. But I guess uh, that's not really the heart of prayer from a biblical point of view. And so this morning, as we look at this opening section of Jesus' prayer in John 17, we're going to see that he has a passion for the glory of God, which I think we should have, uh, and he expresses that in prayer. It's quite a remarkable passage. You don't get too many times in Scripture where you have God, in this case Jesus in the flesh, praying. Uh, you often have the written words of people's prayers. 
Paul often prays in his epistles uh, for the people he is actually writing to. Uh, But it's nice to see that Jesus prayed. Now, we have other instances when he prays, uh, but this is a very critical moment as we're going to see. Uh, Now, Jesus is actually praying for himself here. Now, I don't know how you feel about praying for yourself. I mean, when things go horribly pear-shaped, we tend to pray for ourselves. But in everyday life, when that isn't happening, I think most of our prayers are focused outside of ourselves. Uh, I know my prayers are often for many other people but myself. So I'll pray for my wife Elizabeth, I'll pray for our three adult children and their spouses and our eight grandchildren, I'll pray for our circle of friends and pray obviously for our mission and its activities in the world today, especially with the Ukrainian situation where we have workers on the ground, which you kind of saw earlier, much before Ukraine in the video. So I'll pray for what I perceive to be the needs of others, but I often don't pray for me. Why wouldn't I pray for myself? You know, I'm less needy than others? Not really. Uh, Do I have less problems than others? Well, compared with many in the world, certainly. But I'm still a a fallen human being. I'm still a sinner. I still have a struggle internally with my own selfishness and my own self-dependence. I am a needy person, just like all the people I pray for, whether they're missionaries overseas, whether they're parts of the family. So why wouldn't I be praying for myself? Well, maybe I think it's, I'm selfish to pray for me. (laughs) I mean, surely praying for myself is kind of a little self-centred, right? Uh, Or maybe I think I don't have any needs to pray about. Now, there might be many reasons why we don't pray for ourselves as we ought, but I really got challenged by this passage and others over my journey that I need to pray for me because I have great needs, but especially pray for me in relationship to God. And that's what Jesus does in this prayer. He actually begins with himself, and then as we read further, he moves on to pray for others, especially those immediate disciples that he was living and working with and training and developing. And then he prays even wider than that to include all of us. Every Christian that's here this morning is included in Jesus' high prayer. Uh, And that's amazing that as a high priest, he would actually include us. But I want to look at these first five verses. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we can open this book, the Bible, your word. We have it in our language so we can read it. And by your spirit, we can discern its meaning and we can even be assisted to apply it to our own lives. And I pray that the things that I say would reflect well on what you have said, especially what Jesus himself prayed. And that for each one of us, your spirit would apply that so that it makes a difference for us, for our good spiritually and for the good of others as we ourselves are made more like Christ, so we are a blessing to those around us. I pray that for the glory of your Son and for, uh, on, the, on the basis of his authority and his name. Amen. So we open this verse and it tells us that when Jesus had, <coughs> excuse me, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven Uh, That's a very normal attitude of prayer and said, Father, the hour has come. So this is actually a significant moment in the life of Jesus. The hour has come. Throughout the Gospel of John, this is regularly used as kind of a timing element. And most earlier, it's that hour has not come. You know, my time is not yet. 
But in this case, the time has come. Because the whole reason that Jesus came to earth was that he came to provide a way back to God. He actually came to provide forgiveness for people like you and I who are not in our right relationship with God. And he was just about to begin that work as he was going to be arrested and then he was going to be tried, he was going to be found guilty, then he was going to be crucified and that would be an atoning sacrifice for our rebellion, for our alienation, for our sin with respect to God. So the hour has come, a very significant moment. And you might ask, well, if your hour has come, what are you going to pray? What are you actually going to ask for? Jesus understood that his life was actually divinely orchestrated. He had followed his father's will from the very beginning of his human life under the parentage of, of course, Joseph, his legal father, and Mary, his mother. And then he began his ministry life. And all the time he'd said, I'm here to do your will, Heavenly Father. The works I do are your works. The words I speak are your words because I'm living as a dependent human being. I'm not exercising my deity. I'm not trying to minimise or moderate or ameliorate my humanity. I'm going to suffer all that humanity experiences, but it's because I'm doing what your will has demanded all the way through to the cross. So his life was under the sovereign authority of God himself, his father. And by the way, it's a mystery how you can combine these things together. I'm, I'm in dialogue with someone on Facebook who is a Unitarian who doesn't believe that Jesus is God, that God doesn't exist as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And one of the challenges that we have as believers, believing in the deity of Jesus, believing in the deity of the Holy Spirit, believing in the deity of the Father, is how does that process intellectually? It's very difficult to process intellectually. And so one of the barriers that the Unitarian has is that it doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit. If Jesus is man, how could he be God? And Jesus is genuinely man. He's genuinely human. How could he also be genuinely God? It's a very difficult thing for us to process. But it is what the Bible teaches. And even evidence of it is here in this passage about who Jesus is. But he's living life under the authority of his Father. He's living life as if he was a dependent human being, which, of course, he chose to be. And so he prays. And by the way, your lives, if you're a Christian this morning, your lives are also under divine authority. They're also orchestrated by God himself. You know, Ephesians 2 verse 10 tells us that you are his workmanship and you are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God wants you to walk in, but they've already been planned out. Your life is actually orchestrated. It's not an accidental life. It's not something by chance. Even being here this morning, sitting in these seats, which look quite comfortable, you are not here by accident. You are here by divine appointment. I'm not here by accident. Even though you made a choice this morning to get up, to get dressed, to look your best maybe, come to church, join your brothers and sisters here, that choice was actually under divine authority under divine sovereignty. And so I guess the point is that if your life, like Jesus, is actually orchestrated by God, then we should be praying as Jesus did. We should follow the pattern of Jesus' prayer for our lives. So what did he do when he prayed? The first thing he did, well, there was a significant moment for his prayer, but there was also a singular purpose in his prayer. 
And it's expressed by glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Now remember what's about to occur. What's about to occur is his arrest. What's about to occur is being falsely accused. It's going to be beatings. It's going to be mockings. It's going to be physical pain of the most extreme kind. And then there's going to be the spiritual pain of his father turning from him as he bore the sin of humanity. Not exactly a pleasant prospect. Not exactly a a desirable future for anybody. I think the Western world has turned its back on suffering. I'm not worried so much about the threat of China or the threat of Russia or the threat of North Korea or the threat of other nations. I'm worried about the threat of a generation that grows up that doesn't know the meaning of suffering. Because if you're called to war, you're called to suffering. And they did a survey recently about uh, the newest generation of young adults growing up, about their, their willingness to go to war. And it wasn't very encouraging. It wasn't very encouraging. You know, it takes a, a certain sense of fortitude and a certain sense of personal commitment to suffer to actually achieve anything purposeful and worthwhile. That is the way life is in the world in which we're placed. Unfortunately, we, we're far removed from it. You know, even Adelaide, you know, little old Adelaide in South Australia, we're probably about the furthest from all of the major conflicts in the world. You know, whether it's in the Middle East, whether it's in Euro-Asia, whether it's in North Korea, you know, where, where things are hard and difficult, we are so far removed from it that we don't really appreciate what we have and what it costs to have it. So as we think about Jesus' prayer, you know, he doesn't pray, Lord, make this easy for me. He doesn't pray, can I avoid this? Can I escape this? Can I uh, somehow get round this? Because we know the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays, not my will, but thy will be done. So as he prays here, he prays to the Father to glorify his Son so that he can then glorify the Father. Now, this is not a selfish prayer. And the reason it's not a selfish prayer is because, one, Jesus is God incarnate, so it's appropriate that he be glorified. But it's also that his intention to be glorified is so that someone else can be glorified. In other words, it's not self-oriented. Jesus is oriented to having his Father put on display, to have his glory revealed as it is revealed in him. Now, you remember when his disciples were interacting with him earlier in John's Gospel, actually, uh, Philip said to Jesus, you know, show us the Father. And Jesus responds, well, you know, have I been so long with you that you haven't seen the Father? If you see me, you see the Father. In other words, the more you see Jesus for who he really is, the more you see the Father for who he really is. Because obviously both Jesus and the Father are one, which is part of what he says in the latter part of this prayer. And he calls us to that oneness as well. So his purpose in asking for God to glorify him is so that he can then glorify his heavenly Father. And then he gives some details about what that would look like. He says, Father, the hour has come. 
Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. Jesus actually was given authority all over all of humanity. As the human Jesus, not just in His divine authority as God, but that was what His Father gave to Him. Uh, and so this is his foundation. He, he can glorify the Father because he has the power to do so. And that's good news because we have the Spirit of God in us that can enable us to do the same thing. If he did not have the authority that was given him, he could never have done the will of God. He could never have actually gone all the way through the cross and he couldn't have provided redemption for us as the needy ones. But then he also says... After this, since he'd been given this authority to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, he says, and this is eternal life. Uh, I don't know about you, but I tend to think of the word eternal life immediately in terms of duration. You know, it's a long life, or in this case, an unending life, an eternal life. But that's actually not what eternal life is, primarily in the Scriptures, as you will see in this passage, because what does he say about it? And he says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Yeah, eternal life certainly is unending. But the reality is that all human beings have an unending existence, whether you are a Christian or not a Christian. Uh, your life will not Terminate when your body fails. Uh, you know, I happen to be 67 years of age, and so I know my body is getting weaker. I see some here who are a little older than that. And you know your body is getting weaker. It's not going to last the distance that you might prefer it to last. Or in some cases, you might think, I'd be pleased to get out of this thing. It's causing me so many pains and aches and problems. But when we die and leave this body, we do not cease to exist. All human beings continue to exist beyond this earthly life. And so that idea of everlasting applies to both those who are going to heaven and those who are not. But it is more than that. Eternal life biblically is actually relationship. It's an intimate relationship with God himself. It's an intimate relationship with the creator who made us and the redeemer who has brought us Salvation. That is eternal life. That's what it is. It's actually a quality of life, not just a quantity of life. Uh, and you can actually experience it now. So if you are a Christian, then you have already been given eternal life. You have a new life and a quality of life which is radically different from not having it. And it's expressed not in material things, but expressed in other more valuable things like love, joy, peace, the fruit of the Spirit. And those things you cannot either manufacture nor can you buy them. You can't go into a store and buy love. You can't go into a store and buy joy. You can't go into a store and buy peace. And I'll guarantee you, that the average Australian in the current world circumstance is missing those three major things. They don't have real love. They certainly don't have true joy. And they don't have an immovable peace. 
They don't have those things. And if you've had those for many years, like I have, I mean, I was converted in my late teens, about 18, 19 years of age, so I've been a Christian for many years, and I kind of take for granted that I have these things. I have love, I have joy, I have peace, I have gentleness, goodness, self-control, I have all those fruit of the Spirit. And it kind of becomes sort of, well, this is normal, but it's actually very abnormal in our society. You know, anxiety and fear are on the rise in our society. So this quality of eternal life, which Jesus gives to those the Father has given to him, is actually a precious, precious commodity, and it should be on display it was on display in Jesus' life, even under the most duress, uh, circumstances of duress that anybody's ever really faced. Uh, and it was remarkable and people would wonder, you know, how can this man behave like this on the cross? You'll notice that two people were crucified with Jesus, one either side of him on the cross. Both of them were deserving of death. One of them noticed that Jesus was handling the cross entirely different to people normally on a cross. You know, when Jesus' mother was there at the cross and his disciples, rather than saying, you know, help me, I'm in need, he says, this is my mother, you need to look after my mother. He was caring for his mother even on the cross. Now, when he was asked questions about coming down from the cross to save himself, uh, he said, you know, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Now, Jesus' orientation on the cross was entirely different to any standard criminal dying on the cross. And that's why one criminal said to him, you know, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Saw Jesus as king, knew a kingdom was coming and he needed to be in on it. The other guy, he just kept reviling, he kept criticising, his heart never changed. But Jesus on the cross was remarkably different because he is living out this life that he actually gives to us eternal life. And so I guess an important question for any audience any given Sunday morning is, do you have eternal life? Have you actually experienced the life-transforming impact of Jesus himself? Because of all the things you may have in the world, you have nothing if you don't have that. Now, the Bible also says, you know, what will a man gain if he gains the whole world but it loses his soul? It's a bad deal. You know, to gain all of the wealth, you know, to be in the eastern suburbs, to have your beautiful house, to have your wonderful Volvo or Merc or BMW and to have your holiday home and to have your six-figure, maybe seven-figure salary. All of those things are irrelevant at death when eternity comes. So if you don't have eternal life, you are in desperate need of it, even if you don't yet realise it. But it's available because Jesus says that I give it. So if you come to Jesus, you get it. That's where it's found. But he also goes on to say that he's completed the work on earth. He said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, this is both the past work of Jesus because he's lived as he has been meant to live, a man without sin, a man of great compassion, a man of helping humanity at every point of need, whether it's a leper, whether it's someone who's dead, whether it's someone who's demon afflicted, Jesus delivered them, Jesus raised them, Jesus healed them. He's done all that already and the greatest work is just about to occur. It's going to be the cross. And it's virtually said in past tense because it's as good as done. 
Because Jesus is not going to flinch. He's not going to withdraw. Jesus is going to go all the way to that cross and beyond. The work that you've given me to do, I've done it all. You know, Jesus lived a life of total obedience. He is the exemplary individual, isn't he? I mean, he calls us to follow him. And if we follow him, then our lives are meant to be lives of total obedience as well. But in so obeying his father, he revealed his father. You know, the amazing thing about God is that God cares about us. You know, he he holds the whole universe together, and yet he cares about each person that's in this auditorium today, individually, personally, knows the hairs on your head, and mine are reducing, so it's less of a task. He knows every moment of your life, and he cares about you. That is a remarkable truth, considering how insignificant we are as a planet in a universe, as a city in a world of cities. I mean, this is one of the smallest of the cities around the place. And yet he cares about us right here. That's the kind of God he is. And then he says something very remarkable in verse 5, and we're coming close to the end. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. See, Jesus is not just a mere man. He is the pre-existent second person of the Godhead who eternally passed, enjoyed the glory of being God with his Father and the Holy Spirit eternally passed. And so for him calling to be glorified, to receive this glory again, was completely natural and normal because it was already his. But he'd set it aside to live out his life on earth as a perfect human being for our sake. And so the only time that that glory was kind of not veiled was on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus stood with Moses and Elijah and resumed something of his glory, which was so impacting that Peter unfortunately opened his mouth again wrongly and said, let's build three little booths, little tabernacles for you three blokes so that we kind of can hold on to this for a little bit longer. And as soon as that happened, cloud overshadowed, a voice came from heaven, it was, listen only to my son. And all that was left before them was Jesus. Because he is the one that matters, even though Moses and Elijah are very significant characters in the history of the Bible. See, this glory was his previously, before creation, before anything existed, Jesus and the Father and the Spirit existed in glory. And so John compellingly argues that Jesus is no mere human being. He is God incarnate. But now as an obedient servant, he is, in a sense, earning the glory again. It's being given to him again because of what he has done as an obedient servant to the Father's will. It's right that the human Jesus would be glorified along with the real essence of his being as God. You see, in Jesus, you'll see every aspect of who God is. And I'll just give you a couple of examples of that as we draw this to an end. 
When Jesus goes to the cross, and this is where the glory of God is actually going to be manifested in the most powerful of ways, we see God's justice and his holiness at the cross. Why? Well, because Jesus pays for sin. Now, if sin was not all that important, then Jesus would not need to have died. If God's justice did not have to be served, then Jesus wouldn't have had to be crucified in our place to serve that justice. So God's justice and holiness is seen in the crucifixion of Jesus, the sin penalty of sin being death being paid there. We also see God's wrath when Jesus is actually separated from his father. You know, the only time he cries out with anguish is when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The earth is going to be in three hours of darkness. There's going to be a physical manifestation of the reality of Jesus' separation from his father as he pays for sin because sin is about separation. You know, the consequence of sin for Adam and Eve was to be separated from God. Fortunately, God recovered them. The consequence for us is that we would be eternally separated from God if our sin is not dealt with. It's only appropriate. We are not compatible with a holy God if we continue to be an unholy people. And this cross deals with that. God's wrath is satisfied. But then, of course, God's love is beautifully portrayed in the cross because God gives that we might live. He gives the most precious of all, his own son that we would then have life, that his death would be our death so that his life can be our life. How amazing is that love? And we probably focus on that a lot. You know, for God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only begotten son, that we shouldn't perish but actually have eternal life. There's more love expressed in the cross of Jesus than there is in anything else in the world, in its history and its experience. And then we see, of course, God's mercy and grace at the cross, providing a substitute that opens the way for reconciliation between man and God, forgiveness from God towards humanity. Mercy and grace. And we need it. You know, I pray for our nation and I pray mercy for our nation. I pray grace for our nation. I don't pray justice for our nation. Because our nation is far from God. Many things about our nation are offensive to God. And if justice was to be served without mercy or grace, we would be destroyed as a nation. We would. We deserve to be destroyed as a nation. Our prosperity is not on the basis of justice. It's on the basis of mercy and grace. And uh, our politicians need mercy and grace. We need mercy and grace. Every person does. And then ultimately God's sovereignty is... In the cross. You know, Satan thought that he had won when Jesus was pinned to the cross. You know, he had the, the one who'd orchestrated the betrayal, wasn't he? Satan had entered into Judas so that Jesus would be betrayed to the high priests, to the Jewish religious authorities, and therefore be arrested, tried, found guilty, and killed. That was orchestrated by Satan but it was also orchestrated by God. Because the very thing that Satan sought to do to get rid of Jesus was the very undoing of himself. The cross was the destruction of his power. 
Death could no longer hold Jesus, of course. He was raised on the third day, testifying to the acceptance of his death on the cross, but also the fact that he's the victorious saviour. And no other religious leader has ever risen from the dead. No other political leader has ever risen from the dead. He is uniquely the risen saviour. But it's all under the sovereignty of God. God orchestrated those events. And they didn't take Jesus by surprise. He knew what was coming. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, he knew what was coming. And when they came to arrest him, he's going to say, here I am, (laughs) arrest me. Let these other people go, just take me. And it's expressed well in the book of Acts when it's by wicked and unrighteous men that these events take place and yet it's orchestrated by the predestined will of God in Acts chapter 2, which Peter preaches. So you see, obedience to God by Jesus is actually a revelation of who God is. It's incredible. And it's all because Jesus had a passion for the glory of God so that the God of glory might be glorified. This was his passion, bringing glory to the Father. This is what he prayed. In the most trying time of his life, He asked his father to glorify him so he could glorify the father. For this prayer to be answered positively, it would mean that the death of Jesus would occur. It would mean that the suffering would actually take place because that's where God is most glorified, in the cross. But the positive answer is also brings salvation to us. Positive answer is that the way is open we can be restored to God. So in praying for himself, he was praying for us. That is amazing. You know, the Westminster Confession, which some of you may know, has as a starting point the chief end of humanity. And the chief end of humanity is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's kind of the answer to the question. What is the chief end? Of humanity, it's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So we should be quite happy to pray as individual believers, as husbands and wives, as families, as churches, for God to glorify us that we might glorify Him because we need the glory of God within us. Matthew 5.16 tells us that we glorify God by our good works. And you can't do any good works without the power of the Spirit of God. You can't do anything of any spiritual value unless Jesus is working in and through you. You know, Jesus said, without me you can do? Zilch, yeah, nothing. So you need spiritual power. You need God himself to actually bring him glory and as a result, bring others good. You know, our words and works can actually display Jesus to people. We actually put God on display before people by the very lives that we live. So it's not selfish to pray for yourself. In fact, it's essential that you pray for yourself. You should start every day in dependence on God, and the best way you can express your dependence on God is prayer. It's the one message that is constantly able to be received in heaven is, I need you, Lord. And it's the one message that heaven wants to hear I need you, Lord. You know, as I started the day this morning, I had to pray, Lord, in this day, I want you to be glorified in and through my life so that others will be benefited and blessed and I can't do it without you. 
I can't stand before an audience and speak. I can't open the scriptures and explain them. I can't present anything that's worthwhile and good unless you, Lord, are working through me. So may this be your posture in prayer, that you want to see God glorified and you need Him to be glorified in you so that others would be graced by your life. Let's pray.